In Denny, Mika, Cooter, Patchy, and though sometimes the mobile's scratchy, they ring to talk to Macca. Hey Macca, my name's Adrian. I'm I'm from Papua New Guinea in Lay, sitting here at work watching our sh- our ships getting loaded. I work for a family business, been here ten years in Lay. We've got about eighteen vessels that go around the whole of Papua New Guinea carrying cargo, and obviously we're an essential services company. We're responsible for the transport of all the containers around the country. So we've got a weekly service that goes from Lay to Port Moresby. And then Port Moresby back to Lay and all the New Guinea islands and all around the place. Tell me this, Adrian, how is the COVID being handled in Lay and in PNG generally? Pretty good, Macca, actually. I've been fully vaccinated so and just got my second shot. The locals are pretty hesitant to get the jab, but we're encouraging everyone to do it. The problem that we have here is the accuracy of the numbers because we're simply not doing the test. You know, if we need a test here in Papua New Guinea, we have to pay for it, and it's very expensive. Adrian, what's it like there this morning? In, you're in Lay this morning. Are you down on the on the wharf? Yeah, I'm on the wharf here. Um, been rain. We get a lot of rain. This morning, though, it, it was light drizzle, but now the sun's starting to come out, and, you know, it'll be 33 or 34 degrees every day. On a Sunday morning. There's milkmaids singing below Mount Warning. It's just another Sunday morning. The surfers say it's wicked, sick, it's filthy. Launcestonians and Hobartians And who's to say there isn't Martians Beaming up Australia on Sunday mornings It starts my week, Macca, on Sunday mornings Good morning, welcome to the program Wherever you are, lovely to have your company All Lots of interesting um, information this morning Especially about, where is it? I can't find it, doesn't matter um, I was just going to say, I'm sort of. I have to grow a mullet. Um, John's uh, technical producer is doing the same, and even my dog, because you can't take the dog to the dog barbers either. So the dog's got a mullet too. So um, there you go. Wherever you are this morning, uh, you can give us a ring thirteen hundred seven hundred triple two or o two eight triple three ten twenty. We've got. Uh, We've been talking about all sorts of things lately. This is um, about caravans from Thelma. Thelma Dennis, she says, the original Viscount Caravan Factory was in Adelaide. We bought the chassis there in 1961 and built our own in Broken Hill. I bet it's still out there somewhere. Well, it could be. They were nice little dinky little things, weren't they? Old-fashioned, but just little round caravans. Now they're palatial, huge things with en-suites and whatever. But I reckon the original Viscount in 1961 would be a little trimmer. She says, I bet it's out there somewhere. As we traded in 1971 when the kids were bigger, our van travelled some of the worst roads in South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales, and didn't ever cause us trouble. I still have the camp table with screw-in legs, my wonderful man made from the leftover timber and laminex from the inside fit-out. We had the best time then. No grown ambers on the road. I reckon every second mining family owned a van back then. We only stopped caravanning in the 80s. The kids had moved on in life. So many memories and I'd never change a thing. Dad, a World War I vet, always said you can have all those overseas places but there's no land on earth as good as Australia. Perhaps it's time the Windsors out there had a good look at themselves and learnt the grass is not always greener overseas, says Thelma. She's... uh, she says, P.S., I'm 87 and a half years old. Speaking of mullets, Kel, from Julie, some very interesting history attached to the mullet, Kel, dating back to the 6th century. My beautiful husband had a mullet when I met him, and I thought he was gorgeous. Is that the husband or the mullet? Because the mullet can take on a life of its own so that there's two people, there's the bloke, and then there's the mullet. But I think Julie's talking about the husband, actually. I thought he was gorgeous. Copied from Google, the non-Roman style was termed the Hunnic look, as in Hun, H-U-N-N-I-C. Researcher Alan Henderson describes the ancient hairstyle as useful as it kept the hair out of the eyes. It's like it's cut straight across the above the eyebrows, yet provided warmth and protection for the neck. So they are, John. See, it's not all bad. 
As an ex-mariner, now farmer, says John, John Wilde, I respectfully point out, Ian, that ocean-going vessels, whether they be bulk carriers, tankers, cargoes or passenger vessels, are called ships, not boats. I always do that. I'm sorry, John. Do you see the... So it's a boat, it's a boat. Anyway, one rows a boat, says John. Americans refer to submarines as boats, but bigger vessels as ships. Love your program. We used to listen to the ABC all day, every day, but it's become so depressing with endless anti-Australian sentiment that Sunday morning is the only time we listen, says John from Harrow in Victoria. We did our program in Harrow, didn't we? In 1980-something, late 80s, in Harrow. Lovely little spot. Australia Felix, Mitchell, all that sort of stuff. Pedro Gibbo says, We came across this Telstra phone box in the remote ghost town of Yandabula. In 2014, Yandabula is in far northwestern New South Wales between Burke and Hungerford, right on the border. The phone was working, but it would only take cards, not cash. Kevin, the good work, says Pete from Balgala. Well, Pete, that would be free now if they've been out there to amend it. That's if the Yandabula phone box. And as I said, you win. What do we win if we call from a phone box this morning, Kel? Do we know? Maybe jelly beans or a book or something like that. We'll find something. In it. Uh, also, Sally says, uh, Sally Hall, about phone boxes. Heard you talking about phone boxes. We have one at the top of our street and it's been there for the past 40 years, ever since we've lived here at Blackheath. Over the years, it's gone through many changes, like you said, putting 20-cent pieces in or swiping a card. Yet they are, Yes, they are still owned by Telstra. The one at the top of the street has brand-new signs of it, all nice and bright so you can't miss it. I was going to walk up and ring you this morning, but it's a bit chilly, three degrees here this morning. Well, that's dedication, Sal. I mean, really. The least you could do is get out of bed. Anyway, um, she continues, the lady that was talking about knitting her hats, she could send them to St Vincent's anywhere for cancer patients, also the Westmead Children's Hospital in Sydney to the children's ward. The army was also wanting beanies, and at one stage the maritime was wanting beanies for the sailors. Well, that was in winter. I suppose, yeah, as I say, in cold weather, a beanie, you can't beat it. I wish her luck because there's always someone out there could use them, says Sally. Also, Father Riley for kids on the street. And you can find out more info, says Sally, on the uh, on the internet. We'll talk to you wherever you are, 1300 700 Good G'day, this is Macca. Good morning, Macca. It's Jules from Mount Archer near Rockhampton. How are you? Oh, good day, Jules. Yeah, good. Good, good. What's happening? Oh, a little bit of pea soup weather here today, so it's good. Fogs? Uh, well, we don't get fog on top of a mountain, Macca. We get no. heavy cloud. All right. So, um, yeah, there, there are predicted um, storms for this afternoon, which will be good because we need some rain. How how high is Mount Archer? You're out of outside Rocky. Oh, just on the, yeah, it's about eight minutes up a big hill, but about 700 metres. Uh-huh. Yeah, beautiful. Six, six, six hundred and a little bit if you go right to the top. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful aspect. Yeah. Overlooks the ocean. Couldn't get a better place anyway. Uh, you got a story for me? Yeah, Macca, um Just with people, uh, you know, sort of having trouble mask wearing and understanding the severity of the Delta strain and that. A um, little bit linked with people in India. Um, I visited there in 2016, 2017, and um, I met a family called the uh, San Racalia family in a town called Agra, which has got a loom, what we call a loom factory, and they make the most amazing handmade rugs and runners and things like that. And um, the owner contacted me in May this year and saying that he's lost most of his... um, what they call their extended family. They support 70, 750 artisan families from their loom factory and uh, wow. most of them have perished with COVID. Wow. So he's begging, begging people. Well, I've, I've been sending the email out to family and friends. Because, um, they've, they've got stock there, but they haven't got people now to work the looms. So it's generations lost, Macca. And, you know, I suppose we don't realise that because in Australia um, we don't seem to have a, a lot of deaths from COVID, but it's cut a swathe through many countries, hasn't it? I mean, when you oh, when you think of even when it started, you know, and they gave us figures of Spain and Italy of 40,000 and 
that pales into insignificance into America or South America, Brazil and Indonesia and India and, you know, you can go on and on. And who knows what's happened in China? You won't know, but... No, that's no. That's a terrible thing, isn't it? Because that's a, that's a lifetime of knowledge, isn't it? It's it's more than a lifetime. It's generational. So that, you know, how, how they recover from that, I really don't know. Um, that, that's only in Agra alone, Macca. That's one, one town in, you know, so... There, there is hope, I suppose, but at the moment they're, they're just in a really sad state. But um, on a local level, um, one of my little fuel attendants that I've got to know, she's doing a double degree here at our university. And, um, you know, each week I just sort of chat to her and she's lost 25 out of 26 family members in her hometown in India. So, you know, we're not, we're not hearing those sad stories. No, and, we don't. Um, we we're concentrated on our own little pile, aren't we? But, but yeah, yeah as you yeah. as you say, Jules, I remember you. You rang oh. me. I think you must have rung me in about 2016 when you came back from India, and you said something that I've always <laughs> remembered. You said something like, "India's in my blood, and I'll I'll go back there," or something. It was just you. It just made a real impression on you, didn't it? Oh, it certainly did. I think um, once you get over the initial shock when you arrive, it's it's overwhelming with its colour and its volume of people and the movement of the, the cities. And once you get over that, you discover the most beautiful people and the most beautiful places. And um, as soon as I got on that plane to come home, I remember thinking, oh, I just, I've just got to go back. There's just so many people to meet and so many people to help, you know. But, yeah, beautiful, beautiful place. And I do also recall telling you on every street corner there's a singer sewing machine and, uh, but, and a typewriter, an old-fashioned typewriter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and beautiful poli- place, and, and policemen with notebooks. Am I writing? Policemen with notebooks, yeah, with, with lots and lots of bits of carbon and yeah. then they hand that to the next person and they carbonate more and then eventually it gets to the man with the typewriter. He types it and carbonates it and then you get a copy that you can't read. <laughs> And Jules, you just oh. said it. You just said a thing before when you said um, colour and people wearing colour. I look round, you know. I'm not criticising, but I think I look round. Not only are our cars always drab, our cars are white or shades of grey or black, or sometimes they're red. Mm. But the pe- we all we're, we're drab. It's black and black and black. And yet you go mm. to India or you go to Africa. And they wear the most colourful, wonderful, oh, you know, just even when you go to Aboriginal communities in northern Australia and the ladies have done tie-dyeing and stuff and it's beautiful stuff and, you know, it's colour. I don't know why. Is it something about our Anglo-Saxon background that where we don't, I don't know, we just, we seem to wear, I'm pretty drab. Drab. I'm drab Drab. this morning. (laughs) Well, I think we should change. I mean, it might lift the whole tenor of the place rather than wearing black exactly. and shades of black. Yeah. God help me. I don't know. Yeah, I wear colour, Macca. I've always worn colour. But, you know, people laugh at my colour, but I don't care. I think, you know, it brings the spirit of your spirit out and your heartbeat out. And um, if it can make someone smile and, you know, the world's a better place for it, isn't it? Jules, and when can we go back to India? I mean, I haven't been to India, but when can oh. we do any of that? Who knows? And why would you want to go? Yeah. But people, people are busting. Yeah. It's apparently here in Australia, people are busting to go. Oh, yes, we want to be free. We want to go uh, travel overseas. Mm. I don't know. I, I don't have that desire anymore to travel overseas. But maybe mm. it'll change because you keep changing as you go through life, don't you? Sometimes you want to travel, yeah. and sometimes you don't. Yeah. Sometimes you want to do this, and sometimes you don't. But, um, no, I, I'm I'm trying to remain optimistic about it, but I, I I very much doubt in my lifetime whether I'll get the opportunity to go to. They're, they're hard countries to go to if if you yes. do it the way I did it. I did it with the people, not with the um, prestige. Mm. So I just wanted to know the you know the people that didn't make the the country tick. But um, yeah, no, certainly. Um, it's probably not on my radar at the moment. Um, you know, we've got big big issues happening here that probably need to be resolved before I'd even feel safe 
and getting how, out of the country. Yeah, and, and how do we resolve them? I mean, I just look at the mess that Afghanistan is, and and as oh. soon as there's a war or something goes on, the great um, the great phrases that come out of the American media, like in in Vietnam, it was well, that's collateral damage. Collateral damage mm. was actually when we killed our own people by shelling them or bombing them or whatever, or it's collateral mm. damage. And this, I heard this bloke on the news this morning say, yes, we've identified another threat stream. A threat stream. How about that from some little jargon, some little cliche from the um, uh, um, that would be from the military. They've called they identified a threat stream, meaning the the uh, the people who are blowing peop- people yeah. blowing people up there. They're called a threat stream, mm. and um, mm. and the Pentagon uh, also heard the Pentagon has warned of more attacks. Pity the Pentagon couldn't have warned of warned of what was going to happen before it all happened. Mm. I mean, you know, Pentagon's mm. warned of, yeah, all too little too late, isn't it? Too little too yes, late, yeah. which seems to be the, yep. the history of the world, but certainly in this last 18 months, too little too late. Yeah. We, we wake up yeah, after the event. Mm, I, think we've, I think we've lost our focus and, you know, someone, someone strong's got to pull it all back in. Yeah. You know, community's got to get together in Australia. You know, we've really got to work together. Exactly. Oh, speaking of community too, um, Macker, I've, I've got to give a big shout out. We've got uh, several boarding schools in and around Rockhampton that have international students. Mm. And I'm not sure whether your listeners are aware, but those, those students can range from uh, 10 years of age to 18 now, they have not gone back to their homeland because of COVID. So what happens is the schools um, support them either in the boarding houses or local families and community members, um, and they're, they're mostly Papua New Guinea students. Um, they haven't seen family for nearly two years, and you're talking young boys, young girls that are very impressionable, and community members have opened up their homes and hearts to these uh, children and students in the school holiday times. So, you know, there, there's, there's lovely things going on behind the scenes while all this other, you know, dreadful news is happen, happening around us. But I'd say a big shout out there to those sort of communities that are supporting these students. That's, that's a big task for a little one to take on. Jules, it's a lovely story too. It's nice to let Australia know those sort of things. Um, yeah, there's always um, a bright side to everything, isn't there? Jules, I'd love oh. to meet you sometime um, and I'll wear something bright and colourful. You'll know me. Um, you'll say, here's that bloke in red and purple. Um, or something like that. Brighter than, brighter than that, Macca. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, no, I have met you and Lee. You came to Rocky for a book, bush, a book launch years ago and I dragged in a few of my fellow oh, listeners in and that, we, we in had that... a bit of a... In that little, little bookshop, yeah, when was a the coffee a, bookshop ABC Centre when we used to have ABC shops and centres. Thank you very much. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great idea. But anyhow, yeah, yeah wear, wear colour, wear colour. You you can do it. Good on you, Jules. <laughs> Be brave. Okay. See ya. Love to you and Lee. Have have a good day. Thank you. Cheerio. Bye. Bye. I read this because this is an inspirational little story from a bloke, a youngster called Riley Williamson. He says, "Um, I'm 14 years old and from Portland. I grow trees to share with the community and in doing so I've found a wonderful sense of pride and achievement, says the 14-year-old. Initially it was just something to do during lockdown. A few banks here, cones left on the top of the fireplace yielded the first seeds from here. I was hooked. I continued to collect seeds from all around our area. I collect many varieties, gums, stringy barks, flowering gums, spotted gums, yap gums, as well as some she-oak. With my newfound passion, my pa gave me a bucket of 25-year-old blackwood seed. He gave me the challenge to try and grow some, as he thought the seed would be too old. Accepting the challenge, I put them in a tray with boiling water and let them sit for a few days. Oh, morning, Tanya. How you going? Tanya's all masked up. And, uh, yeah, um... So Pa gave him some blackwood seed. Accepting the challenge, I put them in a tray with boiling water and let them to sit for a few days. Then I planted the seed into trays and again waited. It just took two to three days for all the seeds to pop up. I had 800 blackwood seedlings. Banksia and gum seedlings seemed to take a while longer, but in a day or two I had great success on the blackwoods. I had over 300 banksias, 200 gums and 70 she-oaks. 
Whenever I had a gap in my online learning or after I'd finished my, all my day work for the day, you could see me in the hothouse preparing a potting mix. Then I had to wait, watch and wait again. A few of the trees died, as they do, but that left me with 1,310 trees of various sorts. A year on now and the trees have been moved out of the hothouses and pots. Recently, along with my parents and sister, we planted out 200 trees around a swampy wetland neighbouring our property. It was a big couple of days, digging holes, planting and guarding and watering the trees. 200 doesn't seem a lot until you see them planted out and felt the pain of planting them all. This is a 14-year-old. This is young Riley. I couldn't plant them all and I was running out of space fast, so I looked beyond our boundaries. Is this kid writing this, really? 200 went to the Portland Community Gardens, inspiring another challenge to grow pincushion hakia. Probably much touchier to grow, but remember, I do love a challenge, says Riley. Volunteers in their 80s helped out to plant and guard the trees. I was still inundated with blackwood seedlings, so I was able to donate to the Sea Wind Nursery. My trees are now also planted at Cape Bridgewater in an effort to help rejuvenate the Cape and put it back to what it was before European settlement. What's a blackwood, Kel? I'm not sure about blackwood. I don't think I've... I probably may have seen one. You'd have to ask a beekeeper. They know about the trees. The growing of trees wasn't just about filling in my time during COVID. It's been a great sense of achievement, knowing that I can do this in my own time and make a small difference to both community and the environment. Is this kid all right or what? This has taught me a lot of patience, will, and a skill I believe that more should have the chance to get to enjoy. Go and plant a tree. That's what Riley's saying. Giving back to the community has given me a sense of pride and courage. Knowing I can make a difference to many lives and livelihoods is a great reward. Thank you for your great program. Love to listen, says Riley Williamson of Portland. Riley, you're a little champion. He gets an extra miler. Vote that one, Kel, young Riley. Um, yeah, and you can find trees in your yard or around a place with seeds. Grab some seeds and look up a book and learn how to propagate from seed. Or even you can you can propagate from, what's the name, Kel, can't you? From, um, from a cutting. I've got some rooting powder at home, which I, well, I used to work for Mayne Baker when I was a youngster. When I just left school, I went and worked for Mayne Baker and um, they used to sell rooting powder. And you put a bit of that on your cutting and away you go. COVID-19 continues to occupy our days and concentrate our minds. When is a lockdown not a lockdown? When you have a mockdown, as some have described New South Wales' as belated efforts, to reduce infection rates and thereby reduce the number of people overwhelming our hospital system and particularly overwhelming the staff. But the push is on in New South Wales to ease restrictions. Professor John Dwyer is an immunologist and emeritus professor of medicine at the University of New South Wales. He thinks the whole of the city of Sydney should be locked down with earlier curfew, say 7pm, redefine what are essential businesses and that there are too many people out and about and infecting each other. Professor Dwyer is on the line. John Dwyer, good morning. You've described the premature easing of restrictions as counterproductive. What do you mean by that? And if you look around the world at the mistakes that have been made in managing the COVID epidemic, time and time again, what you would find is that one of the most common ones is that people get some COVID fatigue and pressures are put on governments, etc. And people ease restrictions when they really are not on top of the epidemic. This was true last year, but of course now with this extraordinarily infectious Delta variant, it's even a bigger problem because unless we really squash this thing down, it's going to continue to wreak havoc around the world and in our own community. We've got to stay the course with this and try and stop people spreading it between each other. Restrictions cannot and shouldn't be eased until the numbers are really falling drastically, whereas, of course, in New South Wales at the moment, they're going up. It seems like we don't have the heart for it. In, certainly in New South Wales, we have demonstrations where there's two, 5,000 people and then, of course, business. Uh, wants us back to work. So, And you're advocating really harsher restrictions, aren't you? Well, look, I think in terms of premature easing, there's also the question of not drip-feeding in restrictions as you go along and making them you know, a bit tougher this week and next week's a bit tougher because you're not getting any results. Our problem in New South Wales compared to, say, Melbourne with their lock, big lockdown last year is that we didn't introduce all the measures that we could introduce simultaneously. So we let the virus off the hook a bit because we didn't have all guns blazing. I think many people in my correspondence say to me, look, there's still far too many people, Sydney, wandering around Sydney. 
Now, how come the local car wash is doing a thriving business when you're supposed to have essential businesses only, etc.? So the two-pronged attack that we've got, the only weapons we've got are to keep a distance between each other and to vaccinate. The Delta virus, for all its incredible capacities to do harm, has got one very significant flaw. It's got about two weeks after it infects a new host to multiply and get out of that host because at the end of two weeks, in most cases, either the, usually the host will have killed the virus or the virus will have killed the host, both bad news for the virus. So it has to be able to jump into somebody else to keep propagating. The more we keep make it impossible for that virus to find a new host, uh, the quicker we get on top of this thing. So uh, I'm a believer that from the look, the research I've done and observation I've seen, maximum pain is how you get maximum gain and you get a shorter lockdown uh, and get some better results. At the same time as you are tripling, doubling every, everything you can do to get more people vaccinated. You're listening to the All Over News. I'm talking to Professor John Dwyer. What does suboptimal protection mean in terms of getting the jab? We get different information about, yes, you can have it under 60s, under 50s, two weeks, um, eight weeks, 12 weeks, all those sorts of things. No, right. no wonder everybody's confused. What's suboptimal exactly. protection? Well, look, I think, I think the first thing that people have got to realise is that we are constantly learning new things. As we experience more of this epidemic around the world, we learn more about it. So we now know that with the Delta variant, immunity is waning after your, your standard two shots. Six months after that, the, your immunity is definitely waning. And we're seeing what are called breakthrough infections in countries around the world. People have been vaccinated, but are having a breakthrough infection. And we also know that just because you have been immunized and you are protected, and the vaccines, let me stress, are very effective in reducing your risk of dying or needing a hospitalization. But just because you're immunized doesn't stop you carrying this virus around in your nasal passages and your respiratory secretions. So around the world now, the general feeling is that to get maximum benefit, we're going to need three doses of vaccine. The spacing between the, the injections is also critical. Optimally, the research now shows that with both the AstraZeneca and the Pfizer vaccine, you're best to have one injection and then wait for 10 weeks before you have the second injection. And then you're probably going to need one six months after that to, to really boost you up and give you any long-term protection. The challenge there is that, you know, at the WHO saying, look, you've got so many countries where they haven't been able to give it people a first injection, vaccines are in short supply. We've really got to look at on a global picture and, and see if we can't distribute this more equitably. I love this phrase, learning to live with COVID. Britain's learning to live with COVID. What does that mean in, in reality? Well, look, you hear it everywhere. And it, what it means is that people are saying, look, we can't get rid of this thing, so we're going to have to live with it. That is, we're going to have to accept that this thing is going to be infecting some people and they're going to get sick and some people are going to die. Most of us won't. And we've got to get back to school. We've got to get back to business. We've, uh, mental health has had it. We've, we're just so frustrated. We've got to get on with it. I think it, any society has got to decide what its tolerance level would be for continuing to have serious consequences from continuing spread of the virus. The UK is a good example of what we could be in for. They say we're living with COVID. On the 19th of July, Boris Johnson announced Freedom Day. From this day on, no more of these restrictions, no masks, no social distancing, no nothing. We're going to live with it. In UK at the moment, close to 70% of the population have had two doses. And we keep talking in Australia about how life will start to change for the better for us when we've got 70% of people vaccinated. But what's happening? Well, they're having about 1,000 admissions to hospital a day for new infections. They're having about 100 deaths a day. And hospitals are totally swamped and not able to offer their normal services. And you've got doctors and public health officials saying this can't go on we can't manage i don't call that except i don't think australians would say that was an acceptable living with covid that's dying with covid the other crucial issue of course that's missing in the current formulations is that it's become absolutely clear we have to immunize children certainly we need to start moving quickly on the 12 plus children in our community as soon as we've got enough vaccine. Even toddlers have been found recently to be excellent spreaders of COVID. And the incidence of severe infection with Delta in children and long-term consequences is skyrocketing. So living with COVID is definitely going to require us over the next year to immunise everybody in Australia, everyone that we possibly can, including children. If you say what would be 
satisfactory living with COVID because we're not going to get rid of the, the virus in the foreseeable future. If you have your hospital system is not under impossible strains, the number of infections you're getting in the community has a R value, as they call it, of about 1.3 or less. That is the average person is only in, who gets infected is only infecting one other or maybe, maybe two. And your contact tracers can quickly jump on those cases and put out that far and stop it from being an exponential expansion. Then you can live with, uh, I think that's living with COVID. But to do that, we're going to need very high levels of vaccination and society accepting the continuation of some public health imperatives that we didn't have in 2019 to try and minimize the interaction with people that spreads the virus. So, for example, it might be that uh, we would continue to say, let's wear a mask on public transport. Let's not quite pack so many people into the Melbourne cricket ground. I don't see in the living with COVID as a situation where it's 2019, it's going to be 2022. And if we combine those uh, sensible restrictions, which would allow us to get back to school and uh, to get back to work and business, etc. But society accepts the fact that Many of the things we did before where we were closely packed together, that era has to change for a while and uh, maybe maybe forever because we're all being warned about COVID-25, you know, that these things could roll on. Mm. But a sensible combination, I think you can live with COVID, but you need very high levels of vaccination to do that. I see my some of my grandchildren struggling with homeschooling. I mean, the problems that we're all facing are obvious and this lockdown business is horrible. The question is, how do we best get out of it without having our hospitals already struggling in. I mean, this just just this week, it's been a terrible week for the hospital system. We just can't afford to have more cases developing in the community while we're waiting for the vaccination rate to get to a stage where it's really helping. And that's, that's going to be 70, 80%. There's no magic figure that will get us out of trouble. We're not going to suddenly wake up one day and say, right, we've got 80% of Australian adults vaccinated. The gates of heaven are open and the virus is gone. It's not going to be like that. Professor John Dwyer, thank you very much. Thanks for talking to us this morning. It's my pleasure, Ian, any time. Pam's in Gisborne. Uh, is that right, Pam? That's right. Tell people around Australia where Gisborne is. Well, Gisborne's at the foot of Mount Macedon, and so hence today the temperature hasn't reached 10 yet, but it, it will and we'll have a beautiful day after it. There you go. That'll be nice. Now, what's uh, what's on your mind, Pam? <laughs> Okay, well, I belong to the Friends of the Royal Botanic Gardens, Melbourne, oh, and right. I'm paint with a group called the Whirlies, and <laughs> the Whirlies. we meet <laughs> in normal circumstances. We meet on a Tuesday, and there's about 25 of us, and we paint whatever we want, flowers. Um, but lately, we've done a project called um, the Acacia Project, and we decided we would paint acacias because they're not often painted by artists mm. and we've um, we spoke to the botanist and we decided to focus on the rare and endangered acacias that are growing in the Royal Botanic Gardens. Um, it's an interesting group. They're very diverse, like you've said before. Um, some are prostrate plants, some mm. are huge trees. So each uh, 23 artists took an, um, an acacia and painted it, and we're donating our paintings to the state collection in the herbarium. There you go. What one did you choose? I choose um, acacia alpina, which grows up in Mount Buffalo. It's a little, not very high, perhaps a metre high at the most. Mm-hmm. Um, these are all endangered or rare for some different reason. They might be prolific in another state, but they're not. There's not many left in Victoria. Mm-hmm. There's all different reasons. And on Wattle Day, um, one of the botanists, Neville Walsh, is giving a talk on Zoom um, about the rare and endangered plants, the acacias, and why they are. And we also published a book of our paintings, and we're um, selling that, and the proceeds are going towards research uh, for rare acacias. So tell me a couple of things. Firstly, where do people get hold of the book, and how can they help research? So... Where do they get hold of that book and what's it called? They get hold of the book by ringing the friends. Can I give you a number? You can. 9650 6398. 
03-9650-6398. And they can order the book through that. Uh, We were to have an exhibition of our paintings, but um, Uh, COVID put put paid to that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And now, yeah, see, the other thing, I agree with lockdowns because I I think – when you look at hospitals and see the number of sick people in there and the people in the ICUs, and I had the <clears throat> opportunity the other day to go to a um, a medical clinic, you know, where people get injections, and I saw mm. the crowd outside and I saw the poor people in there. There's two ladies. I went to the Blue Cross, which is in Kingsgrove, and there's two ladies mm. there. One's called Maria. She was giving injections, and the other was called Rose, and they were manfully trying to handle all this and running around and getting people to fill out forms. And then, of course, the the odd bloke, it was a bloke, turns up and starts being abusive to people and to them. And to, mm. I mean, I just when I people seem to discount the, the the fact the work that these people do. And I thought, you know, if I was a big yeah. burly bloke, I would have gone out and sorted this bloke out. But I'm not. So, and you don't want to start fighting. But, but those people have to put up with all this crap day after day after day and imagine what's going on in hospitals where people are sick and you know how many people are in ICU and people, the rest of the people say, oh, no, let us out, let us out. But they don't realise the work that those people are doing, nurses and doctors and all sorts of people because the hospitals are full of people now who are sick and some of them are really mm. sick and some are on ventilators and people are rushing to get needles and all this sort of stuff. And and I just I just I, look they need gold medals those people just like Olympians they do. do they're doing yeah, wonderful work. Well, they should work. look at other other countries where where they've let the people go and the the numbers are just soaring. Yes, and so and their hospitals are under in in crisis, and that's what John Dwyer mm. basically said this morning mm. in the Court to Eight News. The other thing, the bloke who's doing the um the talk on on because uh, Tuesday I think is Wattle Day, isn't it? Um, Wednesday, I think the first of September. Is that Wednesday? I think it's right? Wednesday. Right, mm-hmm. whatever. It's the first of September. He's doing something on Zoom. Can people look at that? How do they do that? If they ring the same number, 96506398. Oh, three uh, in can, front of that, yep. Oh, three, sorry. Yeah, they can... <laughs> Pam's in Gisborne, she's, she's in Melbourne. <laughs> yep. Um, Just they can Melbourne. then um, book into that Zoom session as well. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a look at that. And, um, I, I'll, and what's the name of the, your little book? The book is called The Acacia Project, and if people don't ever get to see the exhibition, we'll put it on if we can down the track. Yeah. Um, all the illustrations are represented in the book, so um, it's a good way of finding out about the rare and endangered plants that we have and can do something to save um, and should. Pam, it's a great pleasure to talk to you. I'll see you sometime. Thank you very much, Maka. Good on you. Bye. G'day, Maka. This is Peter. How are you, Pete? Oh, good, thanks. I was listening to your radio show a couple of weeks ago when you had a gentleman talk about the best few weeks of his working life and he was photographing uh, organs and churches, etc. And it made me reminisce about the best 14 weeks of my working life was when I got to do the map checking for topographic maps up in the high country in Victoria. Uh-huh. Uh, I was away from the second week of January right through till um, Easter and I had the pleasure of walking all the walking tracks, the Alpine walking track and others, uh, driving every track, making sure it was in the right location, had the right name, had the right traffic ability. And I think back and I believe that was probably the best 14 weeks of my working life ever. Well, and why was that? You're, you're out on your own and walking in the high country or what? Or you uh, love maps? There was two of us and uh, there, was, we could, there was no real uh, accommodation other than huts up there, either the forestry huts uh, in the forestry camps or if we went further in, we'd be in Wanangatta Valley and we'd be staying in the old hut there or up on Mount Selwyn there was a another hut and uh, we'd have to take all our provisions in. And it was it was really terrific because, uh, you know, we were basically up there. We'd, we'd take in heaps of uh, fuel to make sure we had enough for the week. We had a lot of recovery gear on the vehicle because basically we, we had to give a true representation of, of what the state of the tracks was up there because we were making the map uh, in more detail than had been made previously. So all of a sudden we were correcting some of the errors in the older maps and it was just it was just a wonderful time to be up there in, in great weather and, and we bumped into people like uh, Sigrid Thornton when they were making the man from Snowy River number wow. two on Mount Howitt. Uh, we, we 
yes, met some very interesting people, people on, you know, who were making tracks and timber cutters, etc. Yeah, look, we worked right across the whole state. So it was very diverse, anything from you know, the high country, farmland, and even into what Victoria has in the way of deserts, the big desert, the little desert, and sunset country. And they were all very interesting, uh, even working in the flat countries out in the Wimmera and Mallee. The high points there were the, the wheat silos. And so we'd actually established survey marks on top of the wheat silos. And you then see things that you wouldn't ordinarily expect. For instance, during the, uh, the heat of an afternoon, mm. you could be looking 25 kilometres away to another wheat silo. There'd be a tree in the way. And if you had a cool evening, the refraction in the air would make that tree drop down uh, below the top of the silo. So you could actually see uh, the level where the people's feet were on that silo. And it was really interesting to plan your work around what you perceive the change in the weather might be to how far you could see. Some of the long distances that we would survey would be up to 100 kilometres uh, with one with turning an angle from the top of something in the, the Grampians around to something else. And, and the instruments we had were, were incredibly accurate, the second most accurate instruments at the time in the world. And that migrated eventually to using GPS and the first project that was ever done in Victoria was in the uh, west of the state. And uh, in 1986, in, in May 1986, we were using GPS receivers that were the size of a small suitcase, ran on a car battery, cost $90,000 each. <laughs> and because of the satellite constellation was not anywhere near complete, we were getting up at 2.30 in the morning to go out and, and do those surveys. And, and that was also exciting. So it was a, a most interesting job to have had Back in those uh, back in those technology change days. Yeah, and are you still surveying, Peter? You're a surveyor, obviously. Um, yeah, I was in a, a specialised area called geodesy, which is long range curved earth and topographic mapping. And I, I for me, that was the most interesting. It's um, surveying itself is a, is a great industry to be in. I did leave um, that industry thirty years ago and started a business selling GPS, and that actually grew into a mapping company. So we now write software for mapping uh, events and objects and the workflows around managing anything from um, mosquito mitigation, biosecurity, infrastructure, cultural heritage. And so that it's kind of really moved on. I, I just cannot believe the innovation that, is, that has been present in the technologies, but it's... Um, it's it's been a, an amazing journey to have gone from these huge GPS receivers to something that now much 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 better and it'll fit in your top pocket. You can literally get down to a centimetre accuracy mm. um, if you've got a good view of the sky and you've got an internet connection and and um, uh, and relevant infrastructure and, and that's right across Victoria, most of New South Wales. And I was it's interesting to think about Captain Cook when he was doing his surveying and. What a marvellous man he was because he, when his his little surveys of where he was and in the world and he had none of that and he was reasonably accurate to, you know, a, a kilometre or so in those days um, and sometimes even less. So um, a marvellous man and using the stars, of course, mostly, wasn't he? Yeah, he was and, and it was phenomenal what they were doing and, and some of the anomalies that come out of that, if you look at the Victorian South Australian border, it's out of location by about one and a half kilometres because in those days they used astronomical observations and the clocks actually slowed down in the time it took to travel from Melbourne across to that border. And so the Earth rotated that little bit more. So if you, if you go up to the top of the Victoria-South Australian border and you stood in South Australia, you can, you can look... Uh, sorry, you stood in Victoria, you can look across South Australia into New South Wales because the line in New South Wales that was supposed to be on the same line of longitude is about one and a half kilometres further to the east. It's a nice, interesting little anomaly up the top there. Pete, it's great to talk to you. As I said, when I can't get to Melbourne or you get up here, we'll get together and we'll have another talk because you've got lots to, lots to talk about, you know, you're, uh, being in the high country and just being out there. It's the best uh, two weeks of your life. There's more to tell, Pete. We'll no, it's best four weeks of my life in the high country doing those maps. Good on you, Pete. Great to talk to you. See you later. Bye. Bye.
Yes, you are. Uh, it's Ben Wallace here. Yeah, I wanted to. You were wondering what blackwood is. Now uh, it's actually a wattle. All oh, right. And it's probably the biggest of them all. You know, there's about a thousand species of wattle yes. in Australia. Yep. Yeah, but this one grows to something like thirty odd metres high, and might be a metre through at the butt. Uh-huh. And it's a very um, useful cabinet timber. Um, there's a tiger stripe one, but it's normally a, a sort of reddish brown colour. It works very easily, and often you see it on coffee table tops and that sort of thing. So, yeah, Acacia melanoxylon. Uh, now, melanoxylon means black wood. Black wood. In Greek, uh-huh. yeah. So, um, yes. No, it's all right. Ben, so how do you know such things? Are you involved with uh, trees and stuff? Um, you could call me worse things than a botanist, and some people do. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I've been interested in plants for half a century. And, and uh, did you, you, So I, you heard that little letter I read from the 14-year-old. I thought it was amazing the way he was writing, apart from you know, germinating all his uh, little seeds, which was wonderful. Yeah, I thought it particularly appropriate because it's Wattle Day sort of thing. Yeah. And it surprises me, the lady that you had on, this, the head of the Wattle Day movement, yeah. uh, didn't didn't uh, pick up on that one, but there you go. The Wattle Day <laughs> Association, which Wattle Day is supposed to be the first, which is, is that tomorrow? No, Tuesday, is it? It must be, yeah, right. Tuesday. Yeah. And but, I, but look, I think it should be celebrated all around uh, anywhere you want where the wattles are out, but certainly in the east coast, maybe in July, um, there's lots of wattles out from you know That's true. from yeah. from top to bottom. But uh, but anywhere because as people tell me, there's a wattle out all all the time. And and as you say, there's a thousand. And I remember we used to get calls from all over the place. We still do, but it's a different time in this last eighteen months. But there were some people. There was a bloke up in far north Queensland, and he was. He was shooting pods off a wattle tree, and he said it was the tallest wattle. So it may have been a blackwood, um, but been, he said it was yeah. a really tall wattle. And the only way to get the seeds down, he was collecting seeds, and they'd shoot it with a rifle, shoot the branch down, and then collect the seeds. And it was a big, tall, a yep. big, tall wattle. I, I'm not sure. Where him. was that again? Uh, well, he was in north, far north Queensland somewhere. Um, I'm not sure. Oh, uh, uh, probably wouldn't be a blackwood in that case. No, I so, think. <clears throat> Best ones grow in the Otway Ranges in Victoria and in the wetter parts of Tasmania. Uh-huh. And it, like red cedar, it's been exploited to bilio, but it, unlike red cedar, it's more more resilient. Yeah, and propagates more readily. Yeah, the uh, the cedar has trouble, doesn't it? There's a bug that gets into it and eats it. Yeah, there's a cedar tip moth that eats the growing tips out of the the uh, young shoots. And I suppose that's why they don't, you know, haven't been able to, you know, forest uh, cedar as well. It tends yeah, to... you can't grow them in a plantation for that reason. Yeah. You've got to have it mixed, you know, yeah. and, and dilute the moths out a bit. Yeah. Um, and how's the botany business going, Ben? Uh, hard to know. It's a good while since I was in the university, but um, I went through the botany department at the University of New England and... Uh, I think they still have a botany department, but I don't think there's a, that many of them around uh, other universities. I, I, I'm not sure. It's a long time since I was there. The University of New England, because I've done some stuff on them uh, recently with some other kids who are in rural science, I think. It seems to be a, a great me- melding pot of kids from all over Australia uh, at um, Uni- New England. Yes, it is. Well, I came from the central coast of New South Wales and I went through the uni up there, but there are people that come from all over the place, as you say, uh, particularly from the agricultural point of view. Um, but they have all, you know, I don't know, I think they even have medicine up there these days, but I'm not sure. So, yeah, it's it's still there and it's uh, still holding its own sort of thing. And it's a great th- a great thing when you're, you know, a student, I think, to to mix with kids from all over the place and cross-fertilise in all sorts of ways, if you know what I mean. Yes, yes, you're right. Yeah. Um, I, while I'm talking about the Blackwood, I have a friend in Victoria, in Lavers Hill, which is in the Otways, who was a um, Blackwood carpenter. He used recycled stuff and he even made a, a, a dining set for the governor of Victoria. He's, he's retired too now, but um, I'll give a shout out to Alistair and Julie if they're listening. They'll be listening. Good on you, Ben. Nice to talk to you, mate. 
Thanks, Ian. Yep. It's a pleasure. Catch you again. Bye. Gary's Bye. in Toongabby. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Maka. How are you? Yeah, good, mate. Um, I've just spent uh, 20 odd minutes uh, trying to dodge the rain in the telephone box um, <laughs> because it's free. But the way they made these new telephone boxes, you've got to stand in the rain because there's, there's not an. So they've cut their costs and given you a free phone call. But um, yeah, so, <laughs> standing out there, patiently, patiently waiting to get to you because I walk this particular track every day and, but ah, oh, uh, public telephone, I'll give Macker a call. Now, this is uh, Toon Gabby so, in Victoria near Traugan, not Toon Gabby in Sydney. No, no, not, it's not that busy. We don't even have a traffic light here or a, or a pub. But you've got a, phone, you've got a phone box. I don't know if there's one in yep. Gabby in Sydney, but... Um, yeah. Half a phone box, Mac, half a phone box. Well, it hasn't got a roof. You've got a roof? It's got a roof, but it's got no sides. No and, sides. And the, oh, dear. The, except for the back that faces the road, but it's, there's not much of it. So <laughs> the, new, the new TARDIS. Yeah. Remember... Remember the red ones where you went in and you closed the door and like you were in yeah. your your own little private world. And you could get out of the weather. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's what I mean. Get out of the weather. Yeah, and there'd be a queue waiting to yeah. get into the box and there'd be some rude, ignorant person. I'm talking to me mother, especially on Christmas <laughs> holidays. Oh, look, I'm... Yeah, that'd be it. Yeah, so... so no, all good. Yeah. yeah. All right, guys. I really enjoy, really enjoy your show, Macca. It's... Uh, it's great, uh, and when you're out walking every morning, um, it's good listening to you. Yeah, uh, to everybody. Gaz, we should send you a – have you got any Australia All Over books? No, but I'd like one. Well, I, I'll tell you a little story. I'm reading a thing about, um, you know, talking about surveyors, the Len Beetle books, but I'm reading a book on a pirate, um, a pirate hunter yeah. from the 16th century, and it's true, and you are talking about earlier about um, – you know, how hard people have done it. Well, these blokes in this boat, uh, in this ship, I should say, a ship, would be out hunting pirates for like 18 months and not going home, uh, living on beef jerky and half a quarter water, uh, things like that. It's just an amazing book. I'll, I'll email the, uh, the title of it. Have we, got a, have we got a number for you? Will I leave you on hold and you can give Lee your phone number and then we'll get your address and then we'll send you a book? All right, yeah, well, yes, that'd be great. All Thanks, right. uh, Megan. We'll, we'll put, to you. Take we'll, care. Good on you, mate. Bye. See you, bud. G'day, this is Macca. Yeah, Macca, it's uh, Dave Lyons. I'm just calling from the um, lower Hawkesbury River. Just ringing about that bloke with a phone box. I actually found a fully intact one down here on the river at one of the river settlements the other day. Well, that Bring the daughter from it because she'd never received a phone call before from a public phone box. Well, that... So I'll pop in. That must be a mistake. It must be that'll have to be knocked down straight away, Dave. <laughs> fully intact on glass. The door actually closes. You actually close the door in fully out of the weather. I've never seen one. All the other ones have slowly been degraded down to wire mesh or fully open. But I was very surprised. Well, you, you, you heard mate? you heard Gaz in Toon Gabby. That's Toon Gabby in Victoria, and and he's getting wet because it's got no you know, well no sides, just a just a roof. Go to, go to Bar Point, you're going to get in my boat, and just near the, just off the public wharf on a track, there's a fully intact telephone that works. There you go. Dave, what do you do? I'm a boating safety officer with New South Wales Maritime, the old waterways, MSB. And are you, are you busy or not busy in these times? Always got tons to do, always got plenty to do, but at the moment, boating activity is pretty, it's pretty, very quiet, very, very, very quiet, which it should be everywhere, just about, or anywhere in Greater Sydney, anyway. But you're, you're, so, uh, but you're not in that phone box now, are you, ringing us? No. <laughs> no, it's about the same size, though. The boat's only, oh, it's a bit longer. <laughs> but yeah, I'm fully enclosing glass now, but yes, I'm out of the weather. Good on you, Dave. Great to talk to you, mate. All right, mate. Cheers. See ya. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.